So, all right, if you guys got a Bible with you, open up to Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12, we're back in Acts, and we're going to spend a whole uh, sermon in one chapter. How about that? It's a great narrative. It's an incredible story, and uh, we really want to try to do it together if we can. So, Acts chapter 12, verses 1 through 25, and the title of the sermon this morning is Rescued from the Hand of Herod. Rescued from the hand of Herod, I I am going to just pray, and then we'll jump into our sermon, and then we will work through the chapter, since it's 25 verses, we'll just kind of work through that as it comes to us throughout our outline together this morning. So join me in prayer, and then we're diving right in. Dear God, thank you for the beauty of singing these songs to you, expressions from hearts that are full of thankfulness and gratitude. We do pray that you would speak Oh, Lord, to us through your word and that you would encourage us today, that you would challenge us today and that you would allow us to learn more about your power and about your grace and about your word going forth and multiplying even in the midst of persecution. God, we love you. Thank you for showing us your love for us by sending your, Christ, your son, Jesus Christ, to die in our place and by raising him from the dead that we may have newness of life. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. In late 1964, communist rebels took over the town of Bunia in Zaire, which of course is in Africa. They immediately began arresting and executing anyone they considered to be enemies of the revolution. One of their captives was a pastor named Zebediah Idu. The day following his arrest was to be a great political holiday. As part of the celebration, great crowds were gathered in front of a monument to Petrus Lumbamba, who was a spiritual leader of the revolution. There were to be speeches given by dignitaries from the capital city, and a large number of prisoners were to be executed in front of the monument. The prisoners were taken from their cells and herded to a truck to be taken to the plaza. But, some of, uh, but for some mysterious reason, the engine refused to start. The prisoners were finally unloaded and compelled to push the truck to get it started. When they finally arrived in front of the angry police commissioner's office, the furious official wanted no further delay. So he lined up the prisoners and he ordered them to count themselves off one, two, One, two, one, two. He took all of the ones and he put them in the truck and they headed to the town center. He made the twos march back to the prison where they had come from. While they were in their cells, the twos that were in the prison heard gunfire as they shot upon the ones and executed them right there in the town square. Pastor Zebediah was one of the twos. And as he was held back in the prison, even though they heard the commotion going on outside, he began to share with his prison mates about the hope of heaven and about eternal life and how only through the death of Jesus Christ and his resurrection and by repentance and faith could they have the hope of heaven. Eight people turned to Christ that day. Hardly had the pastor finished ministering the word to them when a very excited messenger came panting at the door with an important order. The pastor had been arrested by mistake. They were to release him at once. Pastor Zebediah gave a farewell to his remaining prisoners and he returned to his home next to the chapel 
where he discovered that a crowd of believers had gathered in the house of God and were on their knees praying earnestly for his safety and for his release. Great was their rejoicing when the answer to their prayers walked into the building. The prayer service became a praise service for God's faithfulness and his provision. Well, that happened back in 1964. I got that out of Kent Hughes' commentary, incredible illustration, really, to help remind us today about how the God of Peter still rescues people from harm, and he still saves lives. He still does that today. Our, our, our God is a miracle-working God, and our text this morning out of Acts 12 is going to demonstrate how God did an incredible miracle by freeing Peter out of prison and out of the hands of Herod. We're going to learn how that through God's divine intervention, Peter was saved. Imagine waking up to an angel for an alarm clock. That's what's going to happen to Peter. We're going to read about it here throughout Acts chapter 12 this morning. And he was in prison for the third time awaiting trial and certain death. Years later, Peter may have been thinking about this experience uh, when he quoted Psalm 34, 15 through 16 in his epistle, 1 Peter 3:12, which says this. We're thinking about Peter. He's in prison God rescues him from prison. That's what our chapter's about. That Peter quoted this when he wrote 1 Peter 3.12, quoting from Psalm 34, 15 through 16. He says, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Well, this verse, 1 Peter 3.12, is going to serve for us today as an outline for our message This verse summarizes what God did for Peter, and it reveals to us three wonderful assurances to encourage us in the most difficult days of our lives. Those three truths, you see them there in your outline. God sees our trials. We'll look at that in verses 1 through 4. God hears our prayers, verses 5 through 17. And then God deals with our enemies, verses 15 through 25. So let's start off this morning by looking at number one, God sees our trials. Again, looking at the first part of 1 Peter 3, 12, it says, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. God sees your trials. He knows what you're going through, and we're going to see how that works out here in these first four verses. Your first blank, if you are taking notes this morning, says the depravity of King Herod. The depravity of King Herod. Acts chapter 12, verse 1. About that time, Herod, the king, laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. Now, the verse says, about that time, the reference to the prophecy that Agabus had given earlier at the end of chapter 11. Look at verse 28. And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So based on our records from historical accounts, that would have taken place around 44 AD. And at that time, there was a intense persecution that was occurring against the church. We've seen persecution already throughout the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 4, we read about the persecution of Peter and John when they were arrested for preaching about the resurrection in Solomon's portico there at the Temple Mount. 
In Acts chapter 5, we've read about how all of the apostles were arrested and warned to never speak in the name of Jesus again. In Acts 7, we read about how Stephen was the first martyr in the New Testament. In Acts chapter 8, verse 3, we read how Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house, and he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. At the end of chapter 9 here in Acts, we saw that after Saul's conversion, he fled to Tarsus as they were seeking to kill him in Jerusalem. And so here we are now in Acts chapter 12, and we're reading about Herod the king laying, as verse 1 says, violent hands on some who belong to the church. Let me just remind you here, this is not King Herod the Great that was king when Jesus was born. This is his grandson. This is a, a, a king, King Herod, known as King Herod Agrippa I. King Herod the Great was king when Jesus was born, obviously responsible for killing hundreds, if not thousands, of baby boys in Bethlehem. This king, here in Acts 12, King, uh, king Herod Agrippa I, at 12 years of age, to be educated. There he grew up as a close friend of the imperial family. He was an immoral and a dishonest man who then later in his adulthood fled to Palestine, here to Israel, to escape some of his creditors. In Palestine, he lived in poverty under his uncle, King Herod Antipas. That was the Herod that was king when Jesus died. Soon, King Herod Agrippa I, that's who we're talking about here in verse 1, King Herod Agrippa I, soon he became the ruler over Judea and Samaria. Now, he was already told you he was a wicked man. In fact, murder, mischievousness, and mayhem have been known to characterize his entire life. So he was a very depraved political leader. What else did King Herod Agrippa do? Well, we see in verse 2, he was responsible for, your next blank, the death of James. He, that's referring to King Herod Agrippa I, he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Herod was a politician. It got him some points with the Jews if he were to get rid of the disciples of Christ who were turning the world upside down. So Herod Agrippa had James, the brother of John, killed with the sword. Please keep in mind, this is James and John, like the two sons of Zebedee. These were nicknamed, these brothers, James and John, the sons of thunder. This nickname described the brothers well, fiercely loyal. They were the ones who wanted to burn up a city when the people refused to welcome Jesus into it. It was Peter, James, and John who were the inner three disciples of Jesus. They were all fishermen from Galilee. They were all invited to the room when Jesus raised Jesus from the dead. They witnessed Christ's glory out of tradition, and they were there in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus was arrested. This is the James that we're talking about who's now been killed by the sword. He was the first disciple of Lord Jesus to be martyred, and they were killed. When it says he was killed by the sword, suggests charges against him included people astray to follow after false gods. Most likely by decapitation, of course, is the of his head. A tradition from history tells us that his guard was so impressed by his faith and testimony to Jesus that the guard James was not the first martyr that was sent, but James first martyrs. Eleven out of the twelve apostles were martyred. Only one lived to be a ripe old age, and he died 
by natural causes, and that was James's brother, John. It was John on the Isle of Patmos, if you remember, writing the book of Revelation in AD 95. But isn't it interesting to just reflect on the fact that these two sons of Zebedee, the first, James, the first apostle to die, the second brother, John, the last apostle to die. And any time that we hear of a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ dying for their faith, I am reminded of Luke chapter 9, 23 through 25, where Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take the cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save life will lose it. Whoever loses life's sake will save it. For what does it profit if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Well, we know while it's discouraging to hear about James being killed, a son of Zebedee, a faithful disciple of Lord Jesus. It's now getting real for the disciples that their persecution could very well lead to death. So you ask the question, what's going to happen with Peter? What would be his outcome? That's your next blank. What is the destiny of Peter? We know what happened to James, 3 and 4, and when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he put to arrest Peter also. During the days of the unleavened bread, when he seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover, bring him out to the people. Again, Herod saw that having James executed seemed to please the Jews, so he proceeded to arrest Peter also. If Herod gained more popularity by one disciple, if he gained some popularity by one disciple, and I gained more popularity by killing two. And this time, he decided to go after their leader, the spokesman, Peter himself. And because executions were permitted until the Feast of the Unleavened Bread was over, Peter would remain in prison until that time. Peter was placed, as these verses tell us, in a maximum security wing of the prison. As verse 4 tells us that there were four squads of soldiers guarding him. A squad of soldiers would be a group of four soldiers. A squad of four are 16 soldiers in all. Each squad had four soldiers, and they were to keep watch for hours of the day. And during that time, there would be two soldiers that would be chained to either side of Peter in the cell, and there would be two soldiers of that same squad standing on guard just outside the cell. Maximum security. They're going to make sure Peter doesn't get away this time. Because this is third time Peter had been arrested on the first occasion, Peter was released and strongly scolded not to speak in the name of Jesus. But on the second arrest of Peter, we read in Acts 5, 18 through 19, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out. Well, no wonder they wanted to keep a close watch on Peter this time. And at times like this, we've got to be reminded that no matter how difficult the trials may be, no matter how devastating the news may be that we hear, no matter how dismal the situation that we face, God is still on the throne. And he has everything, absolutely everything under his control. He had the martyrdom of James under his control earlier, the martyrdom of Stephen under his control. He's got the imprisonment of Peter under control. And you just got to be reminded this morning that in the difficult times of your life, you may feel this morning like you're trapped. You may feel like there's no way out. Can I just remind you this morning that God is good and that God is in charge and that God will be glorified in your situation one way or the other. 
That's why we hold so closely to passages like Romans 8, 28 and 29, for we know that those who love God, for those who love him, are, all things are called together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And we know that for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So again, we're just being reminded this morning in Romans 8, 28, God causes all things to work together for good. And the good that comes about by that which he causes is that he's conforming you. And he's conforming me more and more into the image of Christ. He wants to make us look a little bit more like Jesus. And so he ordains trials and he brings hardship into our lives in order to remind us that he's all we need and that he's all that we want. And I'm sure Peter's thinking about, does his faith really believe that in this very moment while he's there in the prison cell? James has been killed. His turn is next. What's going to happen? Well, that leads us to our second heading, number two, God hears our prayers. Remember, we're looking at 1 Peter 3.12 as a template. 1 Peter 3.12, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. That was point number one. He sees our trials. Point number two is, and his ears are open to their prayer. So God hears our prayers. So let's look at this. Next blank, the request of the church. The request of the church, verse five. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him made to God by the church. Earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. God's people were in prayer. That's one of the most comforting things for me to be reminded of when I'm in the midst of difficulty is that God's people can always pray. And this wasn't just any kind of prayer. Please note verse 5 says that they were in earnest prayer. This wasn't sleepy prayer. This wasn't prayer right before food that you say so quickly so you can dive into that delicious meal, right? This isn't prayer at the end of the service where maybe it seems to be cut short so people can get out. This is an earnest prayer meeting where God's people are gathering because somebody's life and death is held in the balance. And so they're in earnest prayer. That word earnest means to persevere. It means to be eager, it means to be constant, to be fervent. The word earnest comes from a medical term describing the stretching of a muscle to its limits. The same word is used in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus prayed earnestly. Luke chapter 22 verse 44 describes Christ's earnest prayer and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. That's the kind of prayer that the church was praying on this very night. They were praying with that kind of earnestness. We see the same word used again in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8, where we read, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. And I love how the church already demonstrated this kind of prayer. This early church demonstrated this prayer throughout the book of Acts. In fact, in Acts chapter 4, verse 23, turn back there with me, if you will, a couple of chapters to your left. We see this kind of prayer by the early church, Acts 4, 23, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priest and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything that is in them. In other words, they're praying earnestly 
about God's sovereignty in the midst of a time where there were people in jail. Skip down to verses 29 through 30, chapter 4. And now, O Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. What does that sound like to you? That sounds like earnest prayer to me. They're just like, God, I know they just got arrested, but we're praying that you would make them more bold, more capable. We're praying for more miracles, more signs, more wonders, more opportunities for Christ Jesus to be glorified. And when they prayed like that, what happened in Acts 4.31? And when they prayed, the place in which they had gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word with boldness. That's what I call a prayer meeting. You get together and pray and the, the place is shaken. You ever been in a prayer meeting like that? That's a wonderful experience just to see and to feel and to sense the presence of God through prayer. And that's how these early church people were praying, right? They're, they're praying. They are on fire praying earnestly for God who is sovereign over all things to intervene in a way that would be in accordance with his glory. They prayed together, back to Acts 12. They prayed passionately. They prayed with great faith. They prayed through gospel truths. They prayed with hope. They prayed with expectation. They prayed with power. And it is prayer that marks the turning point of this story. So far, we're just four verses in, and it's like, oh, man, Herod's being a bad boy. James has been killed. Peter's in prison. I thought there's supposed to be an exciting chapter, and I feel like we're losing. We're getting beat up. And then there's prayer, verse 5. That's what changes the whole narrative of the text. All of a sudden, there's prayer. There's prayer, and there's power in prayer. Puritan Thomas Watson said on this text, the angel fetched Peter out of prison, but it was prayer that fetched the angel. I appreciate that, right? It's just a reminder that prayer has power. And because of their prayer, God did that which he had already ordained, but he did that which he would to bring about a rescue to this situation. And that's what we're looking at with our next several verses. Your next blank says the release from prison. The release from prison. Let's just look at verses six through eight. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in his cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly! And the chains fell off of his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself, and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. Now, can I just ask you a question as you look at verses 6 through 8? If you were chained one night between two Roman soldiers facing the possibility of being executed on the very next morning, would you sleep soundly through the night? Probably not. I know I wouldn't. Would you get a good night's rest on a night like that? And yet Peter is obviously sleeping pretty well. He is sound asleep. In fact, it wasn't enough for the angel to show up in the, in the cell where light filled the whole room. The angel probably showed up and is like, you know, ta-da, we're out of here. And Peter's still snoring. So the angel has to strike him on his person somewhere in order to wake him up. 
Peter was in this deep sleep. And we got to ask the question, why? Why was Peter sleeping so soundly? Was it because he was accustomed to being arrested and set free from prison? I don't know if that's really what it would be. I think there was a different reason. This prison experience, in fact, was probably more difficult than the other ones for a couple of reasons. One was Peter this time is all alone. When he was first arrested, it was Peter and John. He had a, a counterpart with him. The next time he was arrested, it was Peter and all the apostles. So he had all of his brothers with him, but this time it's just him. And this isn't at the end of some victory. This is at the end of a great defeat where news had already came that James had just been executed by the sword. Peter's previous arrest had taken place with a lot more energy, but this one follows the death of his dear friend and partner in ministry. He must have been very um, deeply affected by that to some degree. So what gave Peter such confidence and peace in this discouraging situation? And I would say, for one, there was the prayers of the saints. Certainly the prayers were helping Peter handle the difficulty with greater resolve. I mean, when we pray... We can and should be reminded that Philippians 4, 6 through 7 says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and your minds in Christ Jesus. That's true for you. That's true for those that you're praying for. If you believe prayer works, it could be that the prayers of the saints for Peter enabled him to handle the situation in a peaceful way. Prayer was a way of reminding us, it has a way of reminding us of God's promises from God's word. Like Psalm chapter four, verse eight, in peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Or how about Isaiah 41.10 that says, fear not, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. While prayer certainly played a part, I would say that Peter may have also been able to focus on a constant reminder, which was that Jesus had said that he would live to be an old man before he died. Remember when Jesus and Peter were talking after he had denied Christ three times. They're on the shores of the Sea of Galilee and Jesus approached Peter and he says, do you love me? And Peter said, yes, I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Repeated this three times. And at that point, Jesus then said this in John 21, 18 through 19, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. So Peter may have very well been meditating on that very promise that Jesus said, look, when you're young, you had a little bit more freedom to come and go. But when you're old, meaning later in your life, in your old years, you're going to die on a cross it's what's being prophesied, that he would be stretched out and placed on a cross. And that's what church history records for us, that Peter was crucified upside down at the end of his life. He said he wasn't worthy to die in the same mode or fashion that his Lord and Savior was. So he requested to be crucified upside down. 
But that wasn't until the end of his life. And here, we're in about year 44, so only about 12 years after Christ's ascension, Peter's assuming, I'm not an old man yet. I know I'm going to die, but Jesus said it's when I'm an old man. Sounds kind of like all of us in this room, right? I'm not an old man yet. (laughs) One day I'll be an old man. I'm still a young man. Peter might have been just dwelling on that, meditating on the fact that his death wasn't yet to come because Jesus had said it would be when he was old. On this very night, we then read that God sent an angel to deliver Peter from prison. And the angel brought power. And he also brought a plan. After waking Peter up, he told Peter, get up quickly. The angel said, dress yourself and put on your sandals. And then the angel said, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. Now, what I like about observing what's happening here in this narrative is that the angel did indeed bring light and liberty into the prison cell. But if Peter was going to be delivered, he had to obey what the angel commanded. The angel commanded Peter to do several things. Get up, get dressed, get your sandals, gird your loins, and follow me. And these were certainly all ordinary tasks to do in the midst of a miracle taking place, but God often joins the miraculous with the ordinary just to encourage us to keep in balance. You think about it. Jesus multiplied the loaves and fishes, but then he commanded his disciples to distribute the food and then to take up the leftovers. Jesus raised Jairus' daughter from the dead, but then he told the parents to give her something to eat. Even in the miracles, God is always commanding us to do something practical. Jesus brought the miracle to the fishermen on the Sea of, the, of Galilee, but they still had to cast their nets on the other side. God alone can do the extraordinary, but he calls his people to still do the ordinary. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, but he told the men to roll the stone away from the tomb. The same angel that removed the chains from Peter's hands could have put on his shoes, but that was Peter's part to play. Peter was to get up. Peter was to get dressed. Peter was to grab his, his gatherings and, and, and his, gather his robe, and Peter was to go. And I think the question that we could just ask just by observing that is what part do you play in God's deliverance of you? It's God's miracle, it's God's power, but make no doubt about it, he's called you to do something in response to what he's doing, if nothing else, just to walk by faith in that way that he's leading you. God said to Zechariah in Zechariah 4, 6, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. But God also says to us from the pen of Paul in Philippians 4, 13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Just saying there's responsibility. I'm still supposed to do what it is that God's called me to do. It's him strengthening me, but I still have a part to play. Well, back in Acts 12, as we read now about how the angel's saying, hey, wrap your cloak, gird up your loins, follow me. Look at verse nine. And he went out and followed him. 
He did not know what was being done by the angel or if it was real or not, but thought he was seeing a vision. This verse kind of reminds us that sometimes we may feel like we're in and out of reality. But for Peter, this was definitely a real experience. And then in verse 10, we read, when they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them on its own accord. And they went out and went along one street and immediately the angel left him. Again, they passed the first, verse 10 says, and the second guard, they came to that iron gate leading into that city. This would have been the main gate barring the prison from the rest of the city of Jerusalem. Some say that Peter may have been held prisoner in the Antonia Fortress, the Antonia Fortress, which is there at the corner, a big military structure of the Temple Mount where the guards would have been guarding the temple. If so, that's a significant area in Jerusalem with a pretty massive gate that would keep out rioters as well as anybody who wanted to intrude into the temple area when it wasn't open or available. And yet we see here this gate just opened right in front of Peter. This is an incredible miracle. And if God is bringing Peter this far, why not bring him all the way? It's not like all of a sudden he got past the first watch and the second watch and they're like stuck at that big door at the end. This door just opens right up. That's always like my dream, right? Just to kind of walk somewhere and like, you know, I'm like, yes. You know, it's like, that's what was happening. Peter's like walking out, the doors open and then there he is out on the, in the fresh night air of the streets of Jerusalem. And then the angel left him. I would have been tempted to say, hey, get back here. You know, but the angel's gone. Now he knows he's free. You think his next step is a little predictable. At least verse 11 says, when Peter came to himself, he said, now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. At this point, it is for sure a real deliverance. This is not a dream This is something that actually happened. And please note that it did take place in the Passover season, which is the same time of year when the Jews celebrated their exodus from Egypt. In fact, the same word delivered was used by Stephen when he spoke about the Jewish exodus in his sermon in Acts 7, 34. And Peter is now experiencing a new kind of exodus in answer to the prayers of the church. God never wastes a miracle. He has something special planned to show us more of his power, more of his grace, and more of his plan in revealing salvation truths and encouraging us to walk with God every day. And when God does something big in your life, make sure that you thank him and that you're ready to see what it is that he wants you to do next. And Peter's step was, like I said, pretty predictable. He goes and finds his brothers and fellow disciples. Verses 12 through 17, our next section here, says the reaction of the brothers. The reaction of the brothers. Verse 12, when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door, Of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice and her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. 
But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison cell, and he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Well, we read here about Mary, who is the mother of John, whose other name was Mark. She must have been fairly wealthy, for she lived in a large house where everyone could gather together to pray. She also had servants, one which was Rhoda. The fact that Peter knew how to get there suggests that the believers probably met there regularly. And many passages tell us more of this character that's introduced to us, John, who some commentators call John Mark. His name was John, but his other name was Mark. So some people would refer to him as John Mark. We read about him in Acts 13, 5, where Paul and Barnabas were on their first missionary journey, and they had John to assist them. Apparently, John Mark didn't last long because in Acts 13, 13, John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Then we read about the sharp disagreement between Paul and Barnabas in Acts 15, 37. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. And in Colossians 4.10, we learn that this John Mark is actually the cousin of Barnabas. This would be also the same Mark that wrote Mark's gospel. But the important thing to see in our text this morning is that when Peter knocked on the door, a servant girl named Rhoda, which means Rose, came to answer the knock. And she most likely said something like, who is it? And when she recognized Peter's voice, she left him in the cold and ran to tell the others that Peter was standing at the gate. And even though these brothers had seen many miracles up to this point, the resurrection of Christ, his ascension into heaven, the coming of the Holy Spirit, the rescue of prison for all of them in Acts 5, they simply could not believe that Peter was at the door. They had been praying for this very thing, and now it has happened, but they can't believe it. Rhoda was persistent, but they told her that she must be out of her mind. You're crazy. It can't be. And then they concluded, you must have seen his angel. Though it is not taught in the Bible, some Jewish people believe that each person had a guardian angel who would assume the form of that person. In the meantime, Peter kept knocking. He didn't give up, for he had great news of incredible joy about his deliverance. And so when they finally opened the door and saw that it was Peter, they are amazed. And apparently everybody began to speak at once, and Peter had to say, shh, shh, silence them as they're on the open streets of Jerusalem at night. And he quickly gave an account of the miracle of his deliverance and no doubt thanked them for their prayers. And Peter instructed them to give word to James, not to the James who had been killed with the sword, but this is the James who is the half-brother of Jesus. He was the leader of the Jerusalem church. And James is also the author of the epistle of James. So Peter then departs, and we don't see him again until Acts 15, at the Jerusalem council. And at this point, Peter is definitely fading from the narrative of Acts. And apart from that brief appearance in Acts 15, this is the last we see of Peter. From here on, the story revolves around Paul and his ministry. But Peter's deliverance certainly 
would have become one of the favorite stories of the early church, along with this account of the interrupted prayer meeting. This must have always brought some laughs. Hey, you remember the time that Peter was knocking on the door and we thought it was his angel? And then we open the door and there's Peter. I mean, can you imagine the stories that they would have told over and over and over again throughout the next year, five years, 10 years until Peter died? There must have been laughter and tears as they just reflected on the beauty of that deliverance. And surely there were some lives that were changed that very night as they were reminded of the power of God. They need to be reacquainted with the power of God through prayer. If we still want to live by faith today, we have to believe that regardless of the circumstances, God can deliver us at any time and in any way he chooses. And we have to also embrace the fact that sometimes you die. That's what happened to James. And sometimes you live. That's what happened to Peter. It's not for us to decide. We just want to be faithful. Right? We want to trust in God's power but we also are resolved to stand no matter what the circumstances may be and the consequences may bring. We've got to be reminded, though, that God does have that power, doesn't he? Isaiah 59, verse 1, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. We ought to be reminded that we could call out to him at this very moment if you feel like you're in a prison of your own circumstances, of your own making. We, we may all be in a prison in this country for our faith, for standing for what we believe in. And we've got to call out to him with a heart of faith and never doubt what God can do. So we see that God sees our trials. Number two, God hears our prayers. And then number three, we're going to see that God deals with our enemies. Remember, we're following 1 Peter 3, 12, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. He sees our trials. His ears are open to their prayer. He hears their prayers. And then the last part of 1 Peter 3, 12 says, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Let's see how the story ends. We're talking about how God deals with our enemies. Your next blank says the anger of Herod. The anger of Herod, verses 18 and 19. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. And he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Obviously, on the next day, there was a huge uproar in the prison and after an investigation of Peter's escape, Herod cross-examined the guards and ruthlessly ordered their executions. Herod, no doubt, justified such harsh brutality by reasoning that the guards who were there watching the prisoners were irresponsible and unreliable. And what a shame. Herod had four squads or 16 Roman soldiers killed because of his uncontrollable anger. Herod's plan had blown up in his face. He had killed James. He wanted to kill Peter. He needed to pull himself together. Exhausted, Herod decided he needed a vacation. And so he left Jerusalem and he went to soak up some Mediterranean sun in Caesarea. It's a beautiful palace that his granddaddy built, King Herod the Great. It's right there on the Mediterranean, even has a pool 
at the palace. You can see, if you walk through the excavations, gorgeous place for him to go hang out to try to get away from all of his troubles. So there he goes to Caesarea. Unfortunately for King Herod, he failed to learn that he could not fight against God. He could never fight against God and win, and he's about to learn it the hard way. Your next blank says the arrogance of Herod, verses 20 through 22. Now, Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they had come to him with one accord, and having uh, persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. The people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. So here we're seating. This is all feeding into Herod's arrogance. Most likely several months had passed since Peter's escape from the prison there in Jerusalem. But we see how Herod's anger leads to arrogance in these verses. Tyre and Sidon were two nations there to the north of Israel along the coast even though this was a little bit outside of Herod's jurisdiction, somehow his economic blockade was crippling these countries and they could not eat. Something had slowed down the food supply lines. We know what that's like now, even in Santa Clarita, don't we? Something slows down those lines of supply. So Tyre and Sidon were desperate in desiring to make peace quickly. So they had persuaded Blastus, who was the king's personal and trusted assistant, for a meeting. And this was an opportunity for the proud king to display his authority and his glory and for the delegates from Tyre and Sidon to please Herod with their flattery. So Herod decides to show up to that meeting in style. He put on his finest royal robes and he sat on his throne and he gave some sort of speech. The Jewish historian Josephus said that this scene took place during a festival honoring Claudius Caesar and that the king wore a beautiful silver garment in honor of the occasion. In fact, Josephus said that Herod put on a garment made wholly of silver and of a contexture truly wonderful. Herod came into the theater early in the morning, at which time the silver of his garment was illuminated by the fresh reflection of the sun's rays, which sparkled in a surprising manner. We do not know what Herod said in his oration, but we do know how he must have said it. He wanted to impress the people. They played on his Herodian ego and told him that he was a god. And he was loving every moment of it. They were saying, he's a God. Look at him. He's a God, not a man. How could Herod have forgotten what God said in Isaiah 42, 8? I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Herod completely ignored Psalm 115, verse 1. Not unto us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name. Give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Herod had forgotten, or he's 
purposefully disobeying these texts of Old Testament Scripture that would have been well-known to any God-fearing Jew. So what happened? Your next blank, C, says the end of Herod. The end of Herod. After his arrogance, we see what happens. Verse 23, immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathe his last. Herod also disregarded the wisdom of Proverbs. Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Proverbs 16, 25, there is a way that seems right to a man, but in its end, it is the way of death. And just like God did to the Assyrians in 2 Kings 19, 35, so did God do to Herod in this passage. The Assyrians who opposed God's people in 2 Kings 19.35 says, and that night the angel of the Lord went and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Josephus notes that Herod did neither rebuke them nor reject their impious flattery. I mean, think about it. Every time in the Bible that a person or even an angel is somehow praised or worshipped as being God, they are very quick to say, it's not me. Don't worship me. Worship God. I'm a man like you. And yet this got to Herod's ego. And they began to worship him and say, he's not a man. He's a God. And Herod received their praise. He received their shallow and man-centered worship. According to, again, the historian Josephus, Herod lingered on for five more days after the angel struck him. Five whole days of terrible, excruciating pain. And amid all of his pomp and majesty, he suffered a horrible and shameful death. So ended the reign and the life of the man who had dared to touch two of the Lord's apostles. By receiving their praise, he committed blasphemy against God and so therefore justly received his capital punishment. The angel could have struck him with a ruptured appendix or a strangulated hernia or a perforated bowel. Most likely, gangrene, an infection had set in. He could have been literally eaten from the inside out by maggots. God does truly deal with our enemies. He may do it here on earth, or he may wait and do it for all eternity. But God always gets the final say. And then we see at the very conclusion of the chapter, the ongoing work of the gospel continues. Verses 24 and 25, but the word of God increased and multiplied and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose, others names, whose other name was Mark. Just a reminder, God's word does not return void. God's word stands forever. Acts 6, 7 says, the word of God continued to increase And again, here in verse 25, we see that Barnabas and Paul 
completed their mission of bringing their offering from Antioch, and now they have returned with John Mark. This is another one of Luke's summaries or his progress reports. He's showing us how the church spread throughout the Roman world. The church had small beginnings, but it was making a huge impact. And what an encouragement that ought to be to us today. At the beginning of this chapter, Herod seemed to be larger than life in total control, and the church was losing the battle. But at the end of the very same chapter, Herod is dead, and the church is very much alive and is growing rapidly. One preacher said on this text, quote, let's keep our chins up and our knees down. We're on the victory side. It was Charles Wesley who described his conversion as that of coming out of a dark dungeon. The Spirit of God came upon him, his chains fell off, and he stood up and followed after Christ. From his description, it seems that he had this very text in mind of Acts chapter 12. And of course, it was Wesley who then went on to write the great hymn, And Can It Be That I Should Gain? As you know, the fourth verse of that famous hymn says, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. It's a great hymn. We love singing it. I want you to just be reminded it's from this text. From Acts chapter 12, that's what God did for Peter, physically delivering him out of the prison that very night. That's what God did for Charles, uh, as we, Charles Wesley, as we read about his, his, uh, his hymn. And my question to you as we close this morning is, has God done that for you? Has he shone his light upon your face, in your situation, where you are? If you're here this morning and you're just hearing this text being preached, be reminded that Jesus is the deliverer of our souls. He's already done the miracle that's necessary through his crucifixion and resurrection to pay for your sin debt. But God still calls you to come to him. And he calls you to repent of all of your known sins, that you would confess Jesus as Lord over all. And this very morning on this day, the first day of May, is an opportunity for you to say, you know what? I feel like I'm still stuck and I'm still in prison. And the Lord is here to set me free. Would you come this morning to saving faith? After we sing our last song at the close of the service, we're going to have a few people standing right up front. We're going to move it up front instead of the back because there's a little congestion back there. But if you want to talk to somebody this morning after the service is over, we'd love to talk with you, pray with you. It could be that you need to come to Christ in saving faith. It could be that you've been a believer for some time but you're still stuck in some area and you just need prayer and encouragement. It'd be our joy and our honor to provide that for you through counsel and prayer even this morning. Make sure you check out those take-home points as well as you leave this morning and it'll give you a great point of discussion with your families over lunch. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity to cover a whole chapter of your word today. We're blessed by Acts chapter 12. What an amazing story, such encouragement, such a vibrant picture of your power over evil. And yet we know difficulty still happens, as James demonstrated through his martyrdom. And yet we have great reason to shout together with Peter and the others about how you set him free, rescued from the hand of Herod. 
pray that this morning, God, would be a great blessing and encouragement to us all, that we would grow more in our love for you, in our courage to follow you, and in our willingness to accept from your good and sovereign hand whatever consequences may be for how we live our lives for you. Be glorified in our time as we observe communion, the Lord's table. Pray that you would help us to have hearts that are filled with gratitude, thanksgiving, and confession as we enter into this time of our worship. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.